Hello and welcome to BCP, Being Crisis Prepared, the business continuity podcast from Inveroy Crisis Management. Hosted today by me, Matthew Wardner, the founder of Inveroy Crisis Management. And by me, Toby Ingram, a senior consultant here with Inveroy, and good morning to you all. Um, I am also here today. I'm Lucinda. I am part of the wider team at Inveroy. I kind of keep an eye on communications and marketing, so I'm going to be the annoying one that sits in the background and tries to keep everything everything to a structure and a schedule um, throughout today's podcast as it's the first one. She's such a primary school teacher. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the next, uh, next few minutes. So we, we're developing the podcast and the first thing we want to look at is items in the news in the last uh, period since the previous podcast. As this is the first one, we're going to look at items from the last few weeks. Uh, the first one that we're going to look at uh, is going to be Notre Dame. And we're going to look at this later in more depth as a case study. But uh, obviously, hugely important national site for, for France um, and has significance both in the immediate short term, the, the response phase that the uh, fire service did there, and then the longer term implications for revenue for all those businesses surrounding Notre Dame and, and what that looks at. I'm sure people will have read and looked at that, but it's something to think about. What would we do if something similar happened to one of our sites? Toby. Thank you. And I, I think that's a, a, a neat uh, segue into a story that was in the news recently about the explosion at the Tata steel plant in Port Talbot down in Wales on the 26th of April, so fairly recent. Um, it looks as though, according to current reading, what happened is uh, it, it, during the night, so thankfully, uh, very few people at the plant, and thankfully uh, there were only three injuries and no deaths, but um, molten metal came into contact with cold water at the wrong point in, the wrong point in time and caused the explosion. And the, um, the takeaway from this is that no matter how well prepared you think you are, the black swan event can still happen. And when you're discussing business continuity processes and thinking and preparation, if anybody ever says, oh, well, that could never happen, then they need to be uh, taken around the back of the bike sheds and given a severe pasting because it can, because, of course, Notre Dame could never burn down, could it, because it had adequate fire protection. Glasgow School of Art could never burn down twice, could it? Yes, it's already done. Yeah. <laughs> What's the chance? Ex- except it did. Um, and uh, these things do happen. And when you have a, a black swan event, um, by nature, it will not, by definition, it will not be included in your plans because you just haven't seen it coming. But at that point, it's, it's your, your, your mental state, your, your mental preparedness to say, right, we're going to deal with this, we're going to get back on track as soon as possible, that will, it, 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 it won't uh, prevent losses, but it will minimize your loss of productivity, your loss of revenue, your loss of reputation, which is what business continuity is, is all about. So and I think a mental and, a, and an emotional acceptance that sometimes stuff just happens. And, and I think something that we look at when we're designing our scenarios for, for people is rather than say that can never happen, if you can think it, it means it could happen. The fact that your mitigation might be in place, so you say, no, 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 but we've got X, Y, and Z. And that then comes back to the Swiss cheese type um, scenario that, that listeners may be familiar with. It's not the single event that causes the problem. It's when two or three events line up and happen all at the same time that that becomes a problem. 
uh, and the Swiss cheese, maybe something we'll come on to in future editions about jargon busting um, in greater detail. And of course, um, the law of Murphy can apply here because when you say, well, this could, is very, very unlikely to happen, but what is the worst possible time that it could happen? So um, I recall a story from a few years ago, um, largely because some friends of mine were involved, when a hotel in Yorkshire fell off the cliff. You remember the cliff subsided and their wedding was there the next week. And so, you know, the worst possible time for them as a couple, um, if it happened the week after their wedding, well, it's, it's tragic, but it's not disastrous. The week before your wedding, it's, it's bordering on disastrous. So it's always worth thinking through, if this, if this is going to happen, what's the worst possible time and yeah. how would we deal with it? Yeah. My Tata Steel example, if there's a good time for an explosion, it's in the dead of night when there's no one in the plant. What if there have been hundreds of people in the plant within reach of that molten steel? deciding to spontaneously combust or whatever yeah. it is that steel does. You know, so you need to be need to be prepared for bad things at the worst possible time. Yeah. And I, I think that does kind of link though, because you're saying there that um, we often say, oh, it's never going to happen here. And I think wildfires, the other topic, the other thing in the news that we're saying is that nearly everyone in the UK goes, well, we don't have a wildfire problem. This is the UK. It rains all the time. Um, it's like Australia and California that have loads of wildfire problems. But in the and, and news, yeah. how many have there been in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, and I think the people around Saddleworth um, will probably tell you that, sadly, it happens now on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. You know, So it's... Um, yeah, and I think I read recently that the National Trust have put in something like £200,000 to repair the damage from last year because it's a site of special scientific interest. And then that that investment in all of our um, green spaces has disappeared in a wildfire. And uh, you know, Winnie the Pooh Wood, is that what it's called, down in Ashdown? Ashdown Forest, 100 Acre Wood. So, yeah, wood. What, what inspired the 100 Acre Wood in Winnie the Pooh? They had a big fire last week. Or was it even this week? Yep, and, and the fire um, up in Murray... Uh, North Scotland, uh, because it's peat-based, fire crews are having a tremendous challenge putting it out, and you know, they think it's out and it spot pops up somewhere. So and burns, and yeah. if their fire crews are attending these wildfires, then clearly they're not available to attend a quote normal fire. Um, the environmental output of wildfires as well, isn't there? Yeah, it's a little uh, huge effects from that. Uh, but if you're a business operating that in that area what's the implication for your transport infrastructure and access to utilities and so on um, your client base your supplier yep. base um, yep. yeah Road the, inc- all sorts. the incident may be nothing to do with you but it may have a devastating impact on what it is you're yep. trying to, to and, achieve and tying back to your comment about the wedding you know fire on ilkley moor at the moment uh sorry at the moment a couple of weeks ago um you know right next to, to ilkley in yorkshire uh what if you're having your wedding there and suddenly you can't because of the smoke or um, you know, access to it and your, your guests can't get there? So, And then if that's your venue, yeah. what's your insurance provision to make sure that you've got that kind of thing covered? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, how so the, hard is the bro- mother of the bride going to have to work to generate a new wedding uh, yeah. at a week's notice? Yeah. So, so, so wildfires, um, I think, is... People may go, oh, it doesn't apply to us, but I think it's a growing topic. It's going to be an ongoing topic, I imagine, of um, our summer. Yeah, and and, examples in Edinburgh of fires on Arthur's Seat, uh, it it happens all too regularly. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the one hand, we're talking of beasts from the east and severe weather. Uh, Well, is this another example at the other extreme of the impact of little rain um, and also 
increased public access to, to remote locations uh, that means that more people are going there and therefore there is more risk of a, of, of a fire starting. Uh, anyway, certainly lots there from a business continuity and, and crisis management perspective to have a look at and I think what would it be the impact of this wild location, this remote space catching fire and as we say, Winnie the Pooh Wood, Ilkley Moor, these aren't remote spaces, they are on our doorstep and when they burn you know, it impacts on the community. Uh, so we've had a chance there to, to introduce a couple of items on the, uh, the news. Clearly there are dozens and it only takes you, once you've got that mindset, to have a look at the news and think, so what? What would that impact be if that was my business, my home, my community? Uh, and, and then to take those lessons and apply them where appropriate. The next thing I think we wanted to have a look at, if uh, the schedule is keeping, uh, is some look at in-depth. And uh, Toby, you were going to have a look at the high street. Yes, thank you. Um, I think it's, um, it's really important to understand your environment, the environment that you operate in, and to do it logically uh, and dispassionately, and to um, understand where it's great and where it's perhaps trips you up. So if we look at um, the modern mindset, a sort of phone and drone expectation. So if you order something on the internet today, you are a little bit disappointed if it doesn't arrive the next day by Amazon, by DHP Courier or, or by drone. And I think in, in, in many Western liberal democratic societies, that has mitigated against long-term thinking because people are not naturally attuned to thinking the months and years ahead, which is a, a problem for business continuity because you have to be able to spot things coming, trends, fashions, attitudes, etc., etc. So if we take the example of the high street, and there are numerous articles now about where it's going, where it's been, in general, I would say the, um, the, the trend is that it's it is diminishing and it's probably not coming back in the form that we would recognise yeah, it. And, and I guess the recent, you know, the Debenhams whole, whole piece yeah. of news over the last yeah. week is, yeah. Uh, this, uh, yeah, definitely. The department store is definitely on its way out. It is. Um, and a lot of high street stores, independent high street stores are waning. They mm. kind of only exist in neighbourhood areas and then the high street is just, it's just not a place that people go to as much as they used to. And if you're a business on a high street, let's take a retail jeweller, for example. Um, you're hugely attached to your to your premises, which is a, uh, um, a sort of a, a destination. It's lovely marble columns, beautiful shop front, fantastic postcode, etc., etc. But it's also an inexorable and unforgiving overhead because of the rent, the rates, the security, um, and the utilities. And... Um, if the amount of footfall that comes into your shop is no longer covering that overhead, or perhaps it's just covering it at the moment, but the overall trend for the last 10 years has been downwards, you need to be prepared to make a decision early about something which hasn't happened yet. And it comes back to this, this short-term mindset. Many, many of the people we speak to say, well, you know, that hasn't happened yet. We'll deal with it when it does. And in many cases, when it does happen, it's too late. Yeah, and I guess the... the the issue there is, as you say, it's that horizon scanning of spotting the issue before it. If you're a, a, a sole trader, it's put not only you out of business, but it's a second mortgage that you've invested and it's your blood, sweat, tears and passion has gone and you've got no return for those 
potentially decades of investment that you've put into it because it's all just gone because you didn't take the bold decision. Or if you're a larger company with shareholders, actually your job as the the owner or the leadership team is to maximise shareholder return. And if that shareholder return is maximised by you closing the business or selling it to um, uh, a Mike Ashley equivalent, are you doing the right thing to take that that step and close the business despite the fact that it goes against every fiber of your being to do that because of your investment both emotional and financial yeah. in the I mean, business it'll, it'll go against the fibers of a lot of people's beings if you do that so a great example here is uh, sir john harvey jones who was the uh, the first uh, split career man and the first non-chemist to become the chairman of ICI. And um, if any of you find time hanging heavy on your hands, his book, Making It Happen, is absolute gold dust because uh, uh, I think he was a tremendous uh, businessman. And uh, his one of his favorite questions to his division managers was, tell me about your market after next. Your current market is your business. The next market is the marketing manager's business. I want you to tell me who you're going to be selling to in three, four years' time. Because if you don't, I don't care that you're profitable now. I will take steps to close you down before you become non-profitable and an extra drain on the ration tent. And a jovial man, wonderful people person, but he did it on a couple of occasions against huge opposition from trade unions, his own workforce, local MPs, against every fibre of their being. But he said, no, this is my job, is to make these sort of decisions. And he would not allow the risk to become an issue. So... Uh, he would say, I don't have the full suite of information here because I don't know that your division is going to become unprofitable, but I see not enough evidence that it will remain profitable. Therefore, I am now going to close it down, start making your preparations. And it comes back to uh, my my phone and drone mindset, which I think is becoming more prevalent today, that um, there's numerous clients that we speak to. When we say, look out five years, look out 10 years, I haven't got time. I've got to fight the crocodiles that are actually climbing into my canoe at the moment. Um, and uh, it, to give you a couple of more recent examples, um, there's lots of talk about the ban on the manufacture and sale of new diesel and petrol cars in the UK um, in either 2030 or 2040. So if I were a hydrocarbon company, I would be forensically analyzing my data to find out how much of my revenue comes from that market. Now, it may not be direct revenue because I may sell to a refinery, I may sell to somebody else who sells on. But if that ban happens, or indeed in the next five years, if lots of cities start to ban diesel vehicles and petrol vehicles, what is the effect going to be? And where am I going to go for another market before that effect takes place? Because when the effect takes place, Every hydrocarbon company in the world will be competing for new markets. And well, uh, and examples of that, perhaps, is uh, I think I'm right in saying that Shell are investing a huge amount, and I'm sure the, the other majors are as well, in the renewable sector um, because they've already identified that, that you know, the writing is on the wall for, for that in the decades to come. But also I watched a fascinating program, and I think it was about Bentley um, developing and building their first diesel SUV, a couple of year old program. Lo and behold, within a heartbeat of time, relative to the time it takes to develop a brand new, um, not only design but but um, drive chain for your car, that's no longer 
they could have seen the writing on the wall and not wasted all of that time developing a diesel car. Correct. Although you know, I own a diesel car, and you know, the, the five years ago it yeah. was all everyone get a diesel. Um, but the the, the uh, information, the science has changed, and now says that that's. You know, I think it's another case of the, the science. I don't know if the science has changed or it's just there's an element of head in the sand, isn't there? There's an element of it's never going to happen. I mean, sci-fi films have been doing it for years. There's been loads of films where there's no cars anymore. They're, everyone's travelling in different means, or there's been films where you fast-forward into the future, there's no cars, everyone's on bicycles. You can teleport so, yourself to Tesco. Yeah, you? exactly. So why has it, not necessarily the teleporting example, but, but why has no one thought that in a business? They've all gone, oh, this is just nonsense that's on the telly, rather than... But I think well, some of that horizon scanning, the likes of the fantastic work from David Attenborough and, and others in the climate change piece, has incentivized people to look at what is the issue around plastics. And, and if we're not careful, we'll go into a whole separate topic on, on climate change, yeah. and that may be another one for the future. But once you've head, got the, the impetus to do something and your market is now threatened, whether that be plastic straws or um, you're know, putting your drinks in glass, going back to glass and, and recycling um, the bottles and you know, 2p back on the bottle, as some of a certain age will Does remember. I feel like it's gone backwards, um, isn't it? I love you know, that. Instead of doing plastic bottles that may be cheaper, but actually they're they're harmful. Well, that that whole dynamic um, has changed, and therefore it now creates a financial impetus. Hang on a second, our sales have fallen off a cliff because we aren't going with the public well, It's that thing um, of Kodak, demand. isn't it? It's the Kodak, Kodak example. Kodak. Yeah. Total Kodak example. And these things I are love all... how Kodak moment has changed as well. So a Kodak moment used to be something that you took a picture of and it was great, but now the Kodak moment is um, has totally come back and kicked them because the Kodak moment is that they didn't go digital when everyone else did. And, and they, they cornered an ever-increasing share of an ever-decreasing market, which yeah. is wet film. Yeah. And on Monday, they woke up and said, we've got it. We are the only players in the market now. The market wasn't, it wasn't there. wasn't there. There was no market for them anymore. Um, and, it's, of course, it's always easier to see in retrospect. But the point about great executives and great business continuity is you see it coming. And you will never know whether it was the right decision or not. You know, to close the exposed, ICI explosives division on the Clyde Coast, who knows whether it was correct. But the point is people are prepared to, A, look into the future, and B, then take a really bold decision and say, on the information I've got, and I've reduced all of the risks to their minimum, here we go, this is what, what we're going to do. Okay. So, so you know, that, that example, if I just pull that um, together, is, is a great example of horizon scanning. Um, and I think we would uh, suggest, as the BCI and others do, that that is a regular part of the... Um, whether it be board activity or senior leadership team, but it's it has to be taken as a even, corporate function because yeah, you are looking even at... as a marketing person, yeah. uh, that's a huge part of what yeah. we do. And absolutely, the marketing department or individual needs to be part of that because that's all the analytics of the data of what are the trends going to be. If I may, Matthew, I'm just going to mm. jump in there. Um, of course. If you're, if you're going to... Um, uh, exercise that horizon scanning properly you must understand the cycle of knowledge which is that data raw figures becomes information <coughs> when you add context to it information becomes knowledge when you know it knowledge becomes judgment and judgment becomes a good decision and we have seen numerous examples of people jumping straight to a pseudo judgment saying my gut instinct is i'm going to do that when they haven't looked at the data yep 
and they haven't. Yeah, good point. And, and yeah. data is is such a big growth area now. So taking someone else's opinion on data, yeah. okay, when it's so, not necessarily your own. Yeah, and, and uh, if they if they express it in a very uh, concise and attractive way, you tend to think it's correct because you like what you're hearing. But to give you an example, with uh, higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, 41% of the UK's non-EU student population is Chinese. Mm-hmm. It's getting more and more difficult for Chinese students to come over to the West, to Europe and America. The Belt and Road Initiative has a higher education element. It's Asia-facing. There's uh, Higher education is becoming more orthodox in China, so less intellectual freedom, so therefore harder to get visas, etc. And 41% is the, is the key piece of data. So it's not going to stop overnight. But if in five years that 41% is only 20%, many of our clients will say, but we'll get the other 20% from from somewhere else because people will always apply to come and study here. Yes, you will, but they won't bring in the same amount of revenue. Mm. So you may have the same student numbers, but your your cash flow is going to be different and you need to understand that and work out how you will replace it. Otherwise, you're going to be a lot poorer. And, you know, the, the... you unattractive and uncomfortable, unpalatable though those scenarios may be. It's the companies who explore them in detail and prepared to take bold decisions early who survive the longest. Uh, as I say, great example um, and a topic I'm sure we'll come back to in future weeks is this idea of horizon scanning. Um, we've almost strained into our next section there. Yeah. So our next section is resilience rants. Um, so I think horizon scanning may almost have been our resilience rant for today, really, what in terms of... Uh, no, any, um, any extended chat in my service is a rant. Right? But the, the, the resilient rants is, is our third topic um, that we're going to be exploring each week. And... You clearly, I can rant as you've just heard. We can rant all day, um, but that's not what we want to do. We want to hear from from you, the listener, uh, and to do that, we're going to set up uh, our own um, the business continuity podcast uh, email address: bcp at inveroy dot com. Inveroy i n v e r o y dot com, and we would welcome you sending in your your issues that you want to have a rant about. An example that I thought I'd touch on uh, as this the first one is the whole issue of exercising. And uh, I won't do it in great detail, but a lot of people say in order to satisfy the requirement, we need to do an exercise of the plan in every 12 months, every six months, whatever it might be. And that's great. But if you plan, if your plan says you have a primary and if they're not available, a deputy Actually, what the requirement is, is that the people who deliver the plan have been exercised. And therefore, you're really saying that you need two exercises, one for the primary and one for the deputy. And obviously, you mix them up. And wouldn't it be simple if you did the same exercise, but one in the morning and one in the afternoon in order to keep costs um, and and time within reason? Uh But to not exercise half your people means that actually you're not achieving your KPI and you're not putting that tick in the box and you're not assisting them with muscle memory so that if the worst happens, you've assumed you've got a capability, but if it happens in the school holidays when half your team's not there, actually you probably you haven't make the situation worse because they don't know anything about it. Yeah. Um, so yes. anyway, that's my rant. Going to be reading. Is that all right? Is that, um, I, I, like, <laughs> I like that rant. Um, and I think if to, to put it in uh, another context, if you look at a professional football side they will practice their uh, set pieces their corners and free kicks with their primary center forward 
but they will also practice it with the reserve centre forward who may have to come onto the pitch at no notice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two minutes before a game, during a game, and he may be afforded the opportunity to nail the three points, and he has got to do it. Yeah. You know, if he hasn't practised, he won't do it. And you don't see a professional sports team going on a pitch with anybody unprepared. So why would a business choose to do that? Yeah. It's um, the same in theatre, the understudy. Absolutely. We've got the understudy, um, that you, even if there are only four or five people in a play, every, they all have to know each other's lines if they're the understudy to another part so that they can switch and change and bring someone else in. Because yeah. especially yeah, if you're thinking example. of the West End, they, they're doing 10 shows a week. If someone gets a cold, what are you going to do? You have to be able to bring people in and you have to know, they have to be able to know exactly what is going to happen, where it's going to happen and when, without opening a script and reading yeah. it. No, I great example. We uh, went to see um, Rebus play um, Ian Rankin's character uh, in Edinburgh probably six months ago, and the lead character took a turn, um, was unwell about halfway through, understudy stepped in. Brilliant. But if he hadn't been there and able to do it at a moment's notice, um, you know, it was the opening night, it was... It, it would have been a challenge. And um, that's the thing. I mean, and therefore you, you practice in a, for it. In a yeah. crisis situation for your business, it's not just that that person might not be in that day, but what happens if something happens to them during the crisis? Yeah. That's going to take the attention away from somebody else. Someone else is going to be yeah. trying to look after them, and you need a team of people that can step in to do that. And if you haven't rehearsed and trained, it's chaos. Yeah. If you have rehearsed and trained, it's at least organised chaos. Uh, <laughs> I'll come back to one of my favourite examples because I'm, I, just, uh, I enjoy watching sport. But... Um, on the 1993 British and Irish Lions tour to New Zealand, Wade Dooley, uh, who was probably going to get into the test side. Great player. Um, his father, I think, I, think it was his, I think it was his father died, so he had to come back home. And um, Martin Johnson went out as a reserve, called out, flew across New Zealand, straight into the test side. Now, that's a big, big ask. That is a huge art. And Johnson, a wonderful player, fantastic captain, and, you know, could handle it. But it's the mental and emotional preparedness to think, I'm the reserve now, but in 10 minutes' time, or one day's time, or a week's time, I might be the primary, and I, I need to perform. Yeah, and I guess that's an example of, of sport becoming more professional, that they don't do that anymore, and they take large squads, and the last Lions tour you know, were calling up reserves, just to backfill the squad during training during training just in case something happened um and you know those who were called up i think very few actually got into the team oh yeah but but they they made sure that that eventuality was was covered um great i'm conscious that uh, yes. we could rant all day if we're not careful moving on yeah. um i just wanted to to introduce the the fourth topic is jargon busting um, and today, given that it's our first one, wanted to touch on the difference between a crisis and an emergency. I'm going to step in on this one. So when we were discussing, we were planning the, se the sessions and what we were going to say at each point. So we start with the news, we go in depth, we've got resilience rants, then we do jargon buster, and then we've got looking ahead at various things. And um, um, both Matthew and Toby went, oh, well, we can talk about um, crisis and, and, and emergency. And I was like, well, hang on, is there actually a difference between a crisis and an emergency? This is my layman point of view. And they were both just like, uh, yeah um well slightly less millennially um but yes um there, there was <laughs> definitely so we, we changed, it, <laughs> changed it slightly um to what is the difference between a crisis and emergency so so in simple terms um uh, and everyone will have a slight variation on this but i think we would all accept that an emergency 
or a good example of an emergency is something that you have uh, identified as a risk and you have developed a plan to deal with. Yes, it could well involve um, harm to people, harm to property, but it is sufficiently real that you've done something. So, for example, we, since the age of four or five, when you first went to, to school, we all know that in the event of fire, um, you know, we hold each other's hands and we walk out in twos and we, we stand and get counted off. And obviously, as we've got older, there's less holding hands, but you still know <laughs> that, that you, Brody's in the playground. <laughs> you make your way to the fire exit and get out of the building as quickly as possible and wait to be accounted for and then there's a process that goes through. And so that's why it's emergency services. The emergency services a crash. You get 999, quickly. There's a plan to get you. Correct. Right. So, so you know, and those by and large, you know, the three key emergency services. Um, you know, yes, police. We know that bad things happen, and therefore you need people to come and deal with them. Fire and rescue does what it says on the tin. It deals with that emergency that we've identified, and um, the ambulance service. You know, if you're injured, you need professionals to come quickly to deal with it so so we've identified it and we've put something in place to deal with it and arguably um other fantastic uh, charities whether it be rnli for example are in that similar category we need that capability we've identified the risk and that's the way as a group we mitigate that risk crisis on the other hand is categorized by something i picked up from the um scottish continuity group conference uh 20 18, I last year, speaker Dennis Flynn categorised it as uh, it's to do with scale, the complexity and the uncertainty of the event. So you could, if you are swamped by it's just bigger than anything that you ever thought could happen, then it becomes a crisis. If it's, it's more complex than something that you thought of before, because perhaps there are two or three things going on at the same time, or as we mentioned before, the deputies aren't available because they're on holiday. You can't respond in the way that you thought. It has potential to become a crisis. And finally, that uncertainty, perhaps as we were talking at the start, that black swan event, we just didn't see it coming. And therefore, it's not even on the risk register, let alone that we, we've our risk appetite was such that we we accepted it. Yeah. There is no plan. Yeah, we just decided it um, wasn't going to happen, so we didn't plan for it. So now correct. it's a crisis. Uh, I've got a mind back, Linda. We didn't decide it wasn't going to happen. We never even considered that it might. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, so that, so so that level, uh, as I say, typically, I would say, for the, when we talk about a crisis, that's what we're dealing with. It's big. It's complicated. It, it's, it's an unimagined issue that just, you know, oh my goodness, where did that come from? I don't know, but we've got to deal with it. And you know, typically a crisis, the crisis management team tends to be the C-suite, the top level executives, because a crisis can sink the business. And an emergency can become a crisis if it's not well looked after. Um, you know, if you treat it badly because you don't call the emergency services when you could, and instead of being a small bin fire, actually, you've now had the whole building is burnt down. That isn't an emergency anymore. It's a crisis because of the scale and the complexity of putting it back together. And you didn't run by the plan. Okay. And you didn't follow the plan. Great call. I think to 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 row in behind you there, Matthew. Fires we understand instinctively, um, but cyber attacks, cyber events, we tend not to understand quite as well. Mm -hmm. And so, um, interestingly, the average insured loss for a cyber attack is greater than the average insured loss from a fire. So it's a more serious threat. 
Very, very few people are trying to set fire to your building. Very few. Might be one or two now and again. But lots and lots and lots of people are trying to cyber attack you all the time. Yeah, whether you're a member of the public, you, i.e. an individual, or whether you're a business. We're all under it all the time, yeah. There is a certain bank that we both know quite well that filters out 80% of its incoming emails because they are some sort of cyber attack, phishing, scam, whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, in 2017, the ransomware Petya, the not Petya virus, which was um, probably motivated politically um, uh, centered on Ukraine, and uh, it knocked out one of our clients' IT systems entirely for seven days, and that you haven't seen coming. You can't make payments. You can't send emails. You can't access your own data. I nope. think that would be a really good one to go into a bit more detail on a on a podcast in future, because um, I think we probably could talk about that one a lot more. Um, and even cyber attacks in general, I think it would be great to kind of to to kind of go a bit more in depth on that one in future. And that's okay. Lucinda speak for Toby. Stop talking now. Yeah. So we're running out of time. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I was trying to be a to, bit to, more to, polite. <laughs> to, to just um, to just nail the difference between the the emergency and the crisis. Fire versus cyber is quite a good vignette to have in your head and at that point i okay. will stop talking yep. uh, no that's great and um uh, actually that brings us down to our, our final category which yes. is looking is looking ahead and um there are two possibly three different areas here firstly events that are coming up uh this podcast will be coming to you before the business continuity awareness week and for those that don't know have a look at the the um, business continuity institute's website It'll give you lots of information about uh, the Business Continuity Awareness Week. And what runs, is that? Uh, it's the 13th to the 17th of May okay. and is all about using um, uh, shared knowledge to raise awareness of the importance of business continuity and uh, the, the value that that can bring um, to your organisation of doing it well. Uh, so, so that's perhaps the main event that I would raise that people should uh, have a look at. Um, the next two bits that we've got are actually going to be features that we're coming up in future events, in future podcasts. So the next two bits, we're, we are looking at doing a listeners question section. And we're also going to be having featured guests in the podcasts as well so that we can go a bit more in depth about issues that have affected them and how things have come around and, and they have changed those things. Yeah, and so, I'm really looking forward to some of those guests that we've got we'll lined, up, we've got that, lined um, up already. They will be great. And, and what they're going to be talking about isn't, oh, aren't I wonderful, I've done X, Y, and Z. Mm. It's more of, ah, we had this issue and these are the things that we did and these are the lessons that we learned from real events as opposed to exercised events, um, which I hope will be gold dust to our listeners. Brilliant. So if you do have any listener questions, because that's a section that we want to encourage, again, um, a bit like the Resilience Rants, please do um, email on bcp at inveroy.com. So that's bcp at inveroy.com. Um, which brings us to the last bit, uh, if I may. I'm looking at Toby. That uh, yep, uh, we're going to look at um, where are we over the next few weeks going forwards. And uh, one of the things I'm looking forward to doing is working with a client uh, at board level, um, which is something that uh, I think we will just touch on hopefully next time we talk. Of at what point do you bring in the board in a crisis? I think it's quite interesting actually because we already obviously had the board bit written on the board Um, but you were talking there in that last section about how actually it's, it's down to the board what decisions get made but now you're saying well how often is the board trained in the crisis management plans and the continuity plans but it's up to them to make the calls. 
So yeah, how does that it's that balance up? of the, the C-suite, so the chief executive, um, chief finance, chief operations and so on, obviously have their finger on the pulse running the business. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking of a crisis that now threatens the business and therefore has a shareholder interest, mm-hmm. why would you not want to engage with that vast amount of knowledge of both um, board members and non-executive um, board members uh, in order that you bring all that knowledge to bear to do the right thing at the right time for the company. But typically, board members are not five days a week um, employed by the company. And therefore, what is the mechanism and the process for doing that in a constructive way, potentially under time pressure um, to make those those key decisions? So uh, hopefully, this time on podcast number two, we'll be able to bring some of those uh, observations to you um, and and share them with you. And I hope I will have some vignettes from you from uh, some work we're about to embark on with uh, a client who is a medium large scale owner of a lot of wind farms. So it brings us back neatly to renewable energy versus hydrocarbons. Yeah. So that's the end of our um, first podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, please do send us a message on bcp at um, and we look forward to number two. Thanks very much.